Doug Saunders is European Bureau Chief and an award-winning columnist for the Globe and Mail in Toronto. His weekly column is devoted to broader intellectual themes behind international news. He is a four-time winner of the National Newspaper Award, Canada's equivalent of the Pulitzer Prize. He has reported from Turkey, Iran, India, North Africa, East Asia, and even from Los Angeles, where he wrote about the ever-changing U.S. society. By the way, he lived in Hollywood. Please give a warm welcome to Doug Saunders. Well, uh, thank you, Cassia and Dulce, and, and, and thank you to Zocalo and the Skirball Center for putting this on. And thank you for all of you, to all of you for coming out tonight. I'm quite, quite flattered by this. They say, I, I lived here uh, until nine years ago, so it's interesting to see how the city's changed. It was interesting in working on this book to see some of the changes. I think I spoke to one sociologist who said that Los Angeles flushes out its entire, flushes out half of its population every 10 years, something like that, that with the people moving out and in in various directions. In a way, that when I talk about the concept of the arrival city, Greater Los Angeles, in a way, is North America's sort of premier landing ground for people on the bottom rung of, of urban life. My focus in this book and in my work is on a certain sort of neighborhood that's in the center of these transitions. And it may be easiest for me just to start in the middle of one such neighborhood. Let me start with a place called Bulak al-Dakhrur, which is a neighborhood in Cairo, just to the west of the center. It was, until the mid-70s, not much of anything, sort of a patch of uh, wasteland, and then very quickly filled up with a absolute warren of self-built housing of the sandstone variety uh, rising four or five stories above impossibly narrow alleys, often not wide enough to fit a car, just enough for a couple motorcycles or something, um, entirely built by people who'd arrived from the villages of Upper Egypt uh, seeking opportunities that were better than the minimal life of the village and moving out because of the improvements of agriculture happening there and so on, and trying to find the, the very lowest forms of, of an urban living. Um, it, the neighborhood manifests itself as, as a haphazard labyrinth of narrow alleys and noises and smells and uh, endless activity. And the businesses on the ground are every manner of street selling, um, repurposing of found rubbish, uh, rebuilding of automobiles. It's, it's kind of known to many people in Cairo as the place you go to uh, get your car fixed for nothing and so on, Use, usually using parts found from some wrecked car at the side of the road or something like that. Uh, improv an improvised economy that has grown very large within this uh, very medieval structured slum. Uh, and increasingly a class of people who've made it enough, whose ice cream shop has done well enough, whose car repair business has done well enough, whose little factory making parts and so on inside it has done well enough that they have had aspirations and have had frustrations. This type of neighborhood is known as an ashwayat in uh, Egypt, uh, a word that developed over the last 30 years, which basically, as, as I understand it, means chaotic place. And there are about 70 of these neighborhoods containing up to 100,000 people each in Cairo, making up about a third of Cairo's population. And most better off Cairo people wouldn't dare set foot there and would look down at them from their buildings in their neater 
yet still crowded streets downtown as being sort of a threat to their existence. Now, on January 25th of this year, it was Bulak that provided the first crowds of young people who gathered and marched and occupied Tahrir Square. The organizers of the demonstrations, who are not from this, uh, this Ashwayat uh, class knew that the young people of Bulak were particularly angry and frustrated that they had a history of challenging the Hosni Mubarak regime. Why were they angry and frustrated? Because the residents of Bulak, and like many such neighborhoods, had used their neighborhood from the beginning as a platform to propel themselves into urban life. Uh, they had saved a lot from the village to be there. It was not while they appeared to be the very poorest people in the city, they were often the, the most invested people from the villages who'd made a start, and they were using this neighborhood to, to finance the development and survival of their villages. Uh, and they found themselves, once they made a little bit of money, constantly frustrated and thwarted by the established middle class of Cairo. Uh, this was the regime-supporting old middle class uh, who had benefited from the closed, nationalized economy of the post-colonial years, uh, had got the good jobs in the factories that were nationally owned and then later came to be army-owned, but were still in a protected, closed economy. Uh, the regime had damaged this neighborhood's prospects in a number of ways by keeping economic and ed educational opportunities closed to themselves, uh, but also physically. Um, one thing about this neighborhood is that it should be a five-minute walk from central Cairo. In most parts of it are sort of a half-hour walk because there's uh, a whole lot of canals and railway tracks and so on that you kind of have to walk a long distance around to the nearest bridge to get to. Uh, this both isolates people from the bottom-rung urban jobs in the city, but it also isolates their small businesses and shops and so restaurants and so on from the consumer markets of Cairo. And the city has not only endlessly failed to provide basic physical connections to the neighborhood, but it's, there's been a 30-year history of attempts to deal with these neighborhoods by first trying to bulldoze them, then trying to, in sort of glorious language of urban improvement, rehouse the people in them in high-rise developments fur on, further on the outskirts of Cairo. Um, and an indication of how the rehousing projects generally worked was that they would typically build sort of tin-roofed temporary shacks for people to live in after their old neighborhood had been bulldozed down before the high-rises were built. When the, the nice you know, toilet, including up, up to full middle-class standard high-rises were finally built, the people would stay in the tin temporary shack settlements and are, are often still there. Why? Because they provide the ability to have a tight-knit, high-density population and access to the consumer markets. You can, you can set up a stand selling stuff on the streets out there. If you're out in the high-rises, you're stuck living without anything to do for living on the ground. This set of frustrations boiled up and created a collision with the regime class. And I should say what happened early this year was, was in many ways what I'm calling the people of the arrival city of this, this type of neighborhood. Uh, colliding with the established middle classes, the people who you could barely call middle class by 
uh, any standards, but had the beginning trappings. They were making maybe $5,000 a year per family and able to have a car, able to have a small business that was sustainably owned, but unable to get in any sort of market. The young man who set himself on fire in Tunisia was a classic arrival city child, as, as I would call him, in that he, his family still had a home in a very small village somewhere, but were uh, sleeping in rough quarters in a large town or small city and trying to make their living doing the bottom rung things that people do to get established in the city, selling fruit that they'd bought on, um, on uh, essentially where you, where you pay credit for it until you can sell it and so on, ran up against uh, a bureaucracy of official shop owners who resented the informal economy of people on the street, uh, was crushed by them, uh, committed suicide in response, and established a wave of sympathy uh, among people in similar circumstances across North Africa and the Middle East and so on. So these collisions of the new, what I'm calling the arrival city, very lower middle class, upper working class, with the old closed regime-backed established middle classes are a pattern that we're seeing around the world in many cases. Many, many places it's, it's over. Turkey is now governed by both a man and a party which rose from these arrival city neighborhoods on the outskirts. Istanbul grew very quickly from 900,000 people in 1960 to something like 14 million today. Nobody really knows how many. Uh, and those people, the, the Getchi Kondu, the arrived overnight people, uh, building these endless, over-the-hills, self-built, improvised neighborhoods that now dominate Istanbul produced first an angry reaction against these, these arrival cities, then a military dictatorship uh, in very large part provoked by the desire to restrain the political reactions of the arrival city, and then largely through benign neglect, a new middle class emerged in these outskirts and came to be the dominant class and then the governing class of Turkey. And while not without its problems, this has led to a decade of democratic stability, economic growth, and open trade, and into the far greater integration of these born-on-a-dirt-floor classes of the Getchi Kondu. Uh, similar conflicts in Iran, which were not treated with benign neglect, but with much greater resistance, were essentially led to the 1979 revolution. It was, it was in its origins and in the, the language that was spoken at the time, very much an uprising of desire for urban housing rights and small business rights. Something similar happened in Brazil, which has been governed again for most of the last decade by both a party and a man who came from the arrival city classes. Again, it produced a decade of democratic stability. So the, these neighborhoods, uh, they're huge populations that they're bringing in from the villages of the world, uh, can produce uh, a new class whose success or failure can determine the future of a nation. We should know that from our own history. This sort of neighborhood is one that's present in almost every city today, often at the end of the transit line or in the less accessible interstices of the inner city. It contains clusters of residents who come from a village somewhere, either in their own country or in another country often. Um, I'm calling this sort of neighborhood an arrival city, uh, mainly to frustrate scholars who've given it about 30 other names already and don't need another. No, to, <laughs> To draw, none of those names uh, are quite uh, adequate. The slums, the bidonville, the uh, uh, shanty towns and favelas and busties and so on, uh, or the uh, Chinatowns and Little Indias and high-rise 
uh, Plattenbau outskirts and so on here are quite adequate to describe what I'm saying should be noticed about them, which is their function rather than their appearance. The nature of these neighborhoods as the location of a population shift and as instruments that people use to develop their families' futures uh, through a logic of, uh, of, of investment in the lowest possible cost urban space. In the eastern and southern quadrants of the world, these neighborhoods have overtaken entire cities during the last 30 years. Dhaka and Istanbul and Lagos and Chongqing and Sao Paulo are now majority arrival city clusters. Uh, and indeed, uh, Los Angeles and Toronto, especially in North America these days, are more patchwork quilts of arrival cities linked to clusters of villages in another country than they are anything else at the moment. Um, when we look at arrival cities, we tend to see them as fixed entities. As a, when we look out the window, we see this patch of generally ugly-looking housing or apartment buildings and so on. We see them as an accumulation of inexpensive dwellings containing poor people, usually in uh, undesirable conditions, often doing things that we disapprove of. In the language of urban planners and governments, these are enclaves that are too often defined as static appendages on the city, as cancerous growths on an otherwise healthy city. Uh, as Enrique Cardoso, before he became the Brazilian president, was an economist, said, uh, we too often see them as an ecologically defined group rather than as part of the social system. Uh, let me turn to another arrival city, far f both in time and space from Cairo, uh, that again had its ex-villagers come into conflict with the established class. This was the Faubourg Saint-Antoine, a teeming arrival city on the edge of Paris, uh, uh, formed by villagers from various places, stonemasons from Limousine, uh, domestic workers from Brittany, and, uh, and clusters of workers from many other villages, uh, who by 1789 had become very frustrated with the lack of any consideration from the city, living 20 people to a room. And the historian... Olwen Houghton described the t this type of neighborhood, which by the end of the 18th century had come to be the dominant neighborhood of the European city. Each town and city, she writes, had its streets or entire quarters gradually taken over and ultimately swamped by rural immigrants and their families and contacts. They were invariably the most derelict, dank, ill-lit, and ill-provided for in the way of water supplies, areas about which public authorities demonstrated the least concern, but where lodgings could be cheaply found. Yet their location meant that the immigrant was strategically placed near the ports, docks, warehouses, and near important arteries to public buildings. Many of the keepers of the Garni, the 20 people to a room lodging houses, were his compatriots from the same village who had made out in the city. Perhaps he could even expect a little credit from them. He had sisters and cousins who were urban servants, brothers, uncles, cousins, and friends who were valet and domestique. If he sought a casual job on the streets or the docks as a portefeuille, a water carrier, or an errand goer, he needed to know where to go for jobs, and this was it. This was the, the place where the clusters of people from the same village built up economic opportunities. It was these people frustrated by endless uh, repression from the established classes of the city who stormed the Bastille. Uh, they did not lead 
the French Revolution, their ideas were not behind the French Revolution, and they certainly were not the beneficiaries of the French Revolution. But in 1789, as in uh, a dozen more times throughout the 19th and early 20th centuries, it was these people born uh, in a thatched roof place in a village somewhere who were those who risked their lives to express their frustration against the city. So European cities were built from these tight-knit networks of related people from specific villages, often not speaking the language of the place. I mean, it was only around 1900 that even half the population of France uh, spoke French or would have con considered themselves French as their principal identity, largely through the process of urbanization. Living on the very margins of society, with one foot still in the village, the other trying to secure a purchase in the bottom rungs of permanent city life. Underlying these seething new neighborhoods were huge changes in rural life, uh, the abandonment of subsistence, uh, sur survival or starvation, peasant life as the mainstay of a country's economy and its replacement in most places by more productive, labor-intensive, urban-focused forms of agriculture, uh, a change that dramatically reduces the number of people you need to have on the land and dramatically increases the amount of food produced on the land. It's often a violent, uh, as it was in Britain, transition, uh, but usually ends mortal starvation as a major phenomenon as society as it did in Europe and North America. The West became more or less fully urbanized in the first half of the 20th century after a transition through the arrival city that reached its peak in the final third of the 19th century. Uh, as Dickens will tell you, it was often horrific, although it must be said the, the worst slums described by Dickens were tended to be uh, places like St. Giles for people who'd sort of fallen out of the center of urban life through uh, vices and so on, rather than the, the ones, rather than the arrival cities where people were coming in. In London, it was the slums around the uh, railway stations, or before that, on the ends, of the, the terminal points of the roads from the west and south and north that became the arrival city slums. Uh, it was only after the violence of 1848, which was almost always centered in arrival city neighborhoods in the various countries that saw uprisings that year, that the state first began to acknowledge the existence of and invest in the future of transitional neighborhoods, at first through simple things like sanitary improvements and so on, uh, in order to stave off a political threat coming from them. The increase in such investments, especially in Britain, uh, correlates exactly with the sharp increase in social mobility in the countries that engaged in it. If you look at charts of social mobility, it was when they started to panic and spend on the transitional urban neighborhoods that social mobility really took off in Europe and, and probably was one of the greatest sort of times of upward economic mobility during that, the, let's say, several decades after 1848. And just as this great migration was coming to an end in the Western world, uh, punctuated by the wars, it was beginning at a far larger scale in the East and the South. And the, the focus of my attention is this second major, and I'm using the word final because there won't be much of the world left to engage in a, a rural to urban transition once this is done uh, in, the, in the East and South. In the decades of the rapid decolonization that began after the Second World War, we began to witness the formation of large arrival city enclaves in what was then called the Third World, first in South America and the Middle East, then in the Indian subcontinent, and gradually in Africa. These coincided with the first waves of formal, protected urban industrialization, uh, and of agricultural model modernization and the building of roads 
it, it, it's, a, it's often simple arithmetic that until you have roads that can carry people on a bus, you actually don't have much urbanization because people can't physically get there at any kind of a number or rate. Um, in part, because urbanization is never just a moving from one place to another. It's a back and forth over many long periods. Uh, over the, 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 most families begin urbanizing as in between harvest seasons thing, a couple of people, and then it builds up. In, it's more often rural change rather than urban economies that creates the arrival city. Uh, um, but the arrival city finances the rural change that causes further growth and so on. It's a self-perpetuating phenomenon. Driving all this change is a, is a large population transition affecting much of the world. After the Second World War, almost three-quarters of the world's people were peasant farmers, subsistence farmers, almost all of them in Asia, Africa, and South America. The countries of Europe and North America at that point had reached between 75 and 95% urban generally, where they basically are now, a proportion, by the way, that allows far greater food production levels than if you have the land supporting huge populations. Countries like the United States have about 2% of the population employed in agriculture uh, and are able to produce many times more food, many times more calories per person than countries with 75% of their population employed in agriculture. When the land, when the land has, supports people, it doesn't produce food. South America, at this point, uh, 60 years on, is, is nearly there. It's nearly as urban now as North America and Europe, which explains the 10 or 15 years of relative stability and peace that we've seen throughout most of South America. The, the tumultuous transition is still over. The problems are, the problems are not uh, state-threatening ones. Uh, Brazil and Turkey more or less fully urbanized. Uh, but st at this point, only 41% of Asians and 38% of Africans live in cities. Uh, this is changing extremely quickly, much more quickly than governments can really cope with. The world passed the 50-50 mark at some point during the 2000s. There was a, about an event about once a year throughout most of the last decade where some international agency or another would say that the world was now 50% urban and it, you could believe whoever you wanted to. It just wasn't very important. By 2025, uh, according to the more conservative projections of the United Nations Population Division, the world will be 60% urban. By 2050, around 70%, which means that uh, we can expect the shift that we saw in Europe and North America to have completed itself long before the end of this century. This shift will manifest itself in the neighborhoods I'm talking about, in, in the, the bottom-rung urban neighborhoods, in the arrival city, and both here in the West and in the developing world, in many ways it will be our greatest policy test. At first, when this began after the Second World War, the slums and neighborhoods where this transition took place were almost universally seen as transient and insignificant housing for temporary laborers. It was assumed that rural laborers would visit and, and go back in many, many countries. Uh, the post-colonial economies at that point were made up of protected state industry, industries in either nationalized economies or command economies. So th the employment was fairly limited. It was closed to uh, the limited number of people who came in for it. As those economies grew, people would come in to serve it. Agricultural change happened fast enough to encourage millions to move to the city. And 
eventually, outside of those official economies, you started to develop informal economies on the ground within these enclaves, unrelated to the official economies. By the 1970s, large-scale informal economies had emerged from these now permanent arrival cities and began to be seen by the established urban residents as a threat to the urban order and then as a threat to national security, particularly after the countries would bulldoze those neighborhood, these neighborhoods, not realizing that they were not take, they're not destroying a sort of transient vegetative population, but a group of people who represented the investments of uh, generations of people in villages, uh, and they were essentially destroying the home ownership equity of uh, entire clusters of villages. And to nobody's surprise, they, they came back much angrier, would rebuild, and it radicalized large populations. And, it, and it, it was a large part of the collisions of radicalisms that uh, struck many of the countries of Latin America, the Indian subcontinent, uh, many parts of Africa in the late 1970s, at exactly the time as those official economies that had initially brought the people in were collapsing under the, own weight, the weight of their own economic unfeasibility, leading countries into fiscal, uh, monetary, and economic crises. Uh, the results of this collision of the up-and-coming thwarted class and the self-destroying uh, regime class included the Iranian Revolution, the upheavals that led to military dictatorships in Turkey, Brazil, Bangladesh, and elsewhere, the rise of Hindu nationalist extremism in India, and a great many of the revolutionary tensions in Latin America. We're only now beginning to see a return to an understanding of these transitional neighborhoods as being important. Organizations like the World Bank and UN Habitat are beginning to have a more sophisticated understanding of their function. Still, both domestic governments and foreign aid tend to ignore these transitional urban spaces, with some important exceptions. Brazil, Turkey, Peru, um, some of the cities of Colombia, uh, some more enlightened governments in North Africa, uh, um, but uh, and a few places in India and so on, but generally speaking, uh, we still continue to treat them as more of a problem than an opportunity. Let's, let me take you through quickly one uh, developing world arrival city, and then I'll take you through uh, a Western one. Let's, let me talk a bit about uh, Karail, which is a place I spent a lot of time, which is in the center of Dhaka, Bangladesh, probably the fastest urbanizing city in the world by some measure. Um, it's right next to Gulshan, which is the high-rise uh, enclave where most of the middle class and upper class live. Most of the people whose lives we'd recognize uh, live. And they all stare down upon what in 1995 would have just looked like a peninsula of swampy land owned by the hydroelectric utility, but which quickly fill up, filled up with a very dense cluster of tin-roofed shacks with, with uh, sort of open latrines below them and so on, and uh, uh, something in the area of thirty to 50,000 people living in an impossibly tight area. It seemed like, and if you talk to the people of Golshan, it seems like this tin, tin roof cluster is just an infestation that's ruining the neighborhood. The smell rises from it and so on. The people of Golshan are largely unaware that the people who provide the services they need to live in their apartments, the childminders, house cleaners, prostitutes, car drivers, and uh, all the other people you need to live are all coming from this area below. And not only that, but this is not actually a place of the bottom and the fallen, but is actually a place of the, some of the most successful people uh, 
who've come from the villages of Bangladesh where seasonal starvation is a reality. I mean, Bangladesh doesn't produce any food. It, it's an importer of food. Its villages are places that you try to get out of. And um, those who saved enough to get themselves a foothold in the slums of Bangladesh uh, often move from what would seem to us a more appealing-looking bamboo slum into this tin slum right near the middle for two reasons. First of all, because it provides proximity to jobs, both of the domestic jobs serving these towers. There's a garment industry right nearby, and there, uh, there's a teeming industrial sector within the slum and so on. But second of all, because they believe that uh, they can own the tin shacks. And uh, one of the interesting things about the slums of the developing world is that there's a very high rate of de facto ownership of the shack properties. This isn't so much true in sub-Saharan Africa where it tends to be rental more than ownership, but everywhere else in the world now, uh, it's never legal, legal ownership, or rarely, but it usually is buying from whoever subdivided what, whatever piece of land they didn't really own, and it's, it's, it gives you enough of a title or sense of ownership that you can speculate on the rising value of your slum shack and use it to get loans, again, in the unregulated informal sector to finance small business opportunities and so on. In other words, a lot of the poorest people in the world use their real estate very much like uh, we in the West, uh, in the middle class, would use it, and so on, on a much lower area. Um, the, it would be an exaggeration to say that you have a middle class in any reasonable sense developing in a slum, slum like this, but you do have people developing. Uh, there's a big metalworking sector, a big woodworking sector, a huge industry within this one, repurposing uh, plastic found into uh, sellable commodities and so on, uh, a growing industry within it. Uh, let me take you as a last place uh, to a neighborhood in the West I visited, which is a lot like a lot of places in the United States in that it's an inner ring suburb that has become occupied by immigrants. Uh, this is Slotervart on the edge of Amsterdam, uh, which was built as a utopian sort of Le Corbusier-style uh, neighborhood in that you'd recognize it. It has windy streets, sort of three, four-story uh, nice apartment buildings with huge grassy areas between them and a strict separation of uh, a big park separating it from the city and a strict separation of housing from retail, from industrial. They, they don't ha you don't have to pollute yourself with the other one and so on. Built after World War II for what they assumed would be uh, working class Dutch people who would want to flee the horrible canal packed downtown of Amsterdam and live in, live in a nice suburb and outskirt. It never happened that way, of course. It was occupied from the beginning by people from the Reef Valley of Morocco, mainly, moving in to fill huge labor shortages in the Dutch economy. And th that type of neighborhood was horrifically ill-suited to the activities of any new immigrant. They could discovered quickly they could not start any sort of small business. Uh, they were so far apart they couldn't get a market going. They couldn't get consumers from Amsterdam to reach their shops and so on. The same problems that you get into the, in the high-rise outskirts of North American cities that are increasingly, I mean, almost all immigration in North America goes to the suburbs nowadays. Uh, a physical lack of access to the markets and, and to the better educational opportunities and so on. And this neighborhood spiraled off into isolation, encrusted in satellite dishes, which were a visual indication that it was far easier to link yourself 
in this neighborhood to the television signals of North Africa than it was to link yourself to the actual culture of Amsterdam, which was two kilometers away. Uh, and in 2004, this neighborhood reached a point where one of its young men uh, attracted into a type of radicalism uh, that was a phenomenon of the lack of urban citizenship, uh, st stabbed Theo van Gogh, the filmmaker, to death, and set in course a, uh, a uh, half decade of uh, political reaction that still is the dominant factor in the Netherlands today. But what's interesting is the way, and why I'm pointing to this, because I think it offers lessons for uh, cities here is the way that Dutch fixed this neighborhood. The, the Amsterdam government and its housing cooperatives decided the way that a large part of the problem was the physical form of the neighborhood. And they demolished a lot of these utopian uh, park city uh, complexes and replaced them with tight grid streets with dense eight to 10 story buildings, lining them with no green space between them. Uh, right up next to the city, lots of cars moving back and forth on them, and the lower two floors of these buildings could be used as a factory, a shop, a restaurant, anything you wanted, no zoning whatsoever, uh, designed to attract almost any sort of person. Essentially, they said that the type of space that you have in downtown LA or the Lower East Side or Brick Lane or Lower Spadina in Toronto or places like this that become the successful immigrant neighborhoods that propel the children of the people who live there into university and government and so on uh, and provide a mix of both the established white population wanting to set up creative businesses along with the up-and-coming immigrant population. Uh, if we create that physical space, maybe the culture will come to fill, to fill it in the same way it did in those other cities. And the Dutch had experiences with this type of densification and degreenification as a way to improve. Essentially, what they discovered and what some other places I've found in Spain and uh, uh, some parts of North America have discovered is you actually need to bring some of the physical and economic characteristics of the stinking Asian slum into the suburban outskirt of the major city to make the bottom rung Im uh, immigrant neighborhood work. Uh, you need that flexibility of form, you need the density of population, and you need the self-government and self-controlled aspect. Uh, certainly, there are many aspects of the North American suburb that ought to be brought to the Asian slum as well, uh, such as toilets uh, and uh, not getting cholera and uh, child care and uh, police policing that isn't an annual raid by the National Army, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, but there are also flexibilities of form that, that, that ought to be brought in. So if I can end just by talking about what I've found is that there is almost a universal theory of the bottom rung neighborhood that I developed in this, which I, I'm not trying to draw too many commonalities between uh, a dirt-floored slum in, uh, in Kenya and a, uh, a high-rise cluster in the outskirts of DC, for example, but there is a similar logic in the way that new communities coming from generally rural areas, either internationally or internally, use these neighborhoods. And we can assume that the default mode of these places is success in the sense that they are built upon uh, a set of people who have made large investments and taken very large risks 
in their occupation in these neighborhoods. Nobody falls out of a village somewhere and lands in an urban space hoping for the best and maybe wanting to collect welfare or something. The investments are far too high, the risks are far too high, and you, you need uh, concrete information and a set of opportunities which you can expect to happen for yourselves. And what, when they don't succeed, and I think we North Americans know that the default mode of these neighborhoods is success, because many of our ancestors came through very rough and tumble, bottom-rung urban neighborhoods that were very similar in some ways, sometimes strikingly similar. Chicago, around the time of the First World War, a third, something like a third of its population lived in self-built shack towns around the outskirts without uh, proper toilets or anything. I mean, it's, we're not that far removed from this life. Um, how do we make sure these neighborhoods can create the types of economies within and link themselves to the established economy without in the ways that the most successful ones that we know about do? I, I would say it's more by removing the impediments toward their own natural success. Sometimes this requires an investment, sometimes it requires government to get out of the way a bit. Uh, uh, but there are three types of barriers to these neighborhoods' success, and I think we should think about our own, own neighborhoods in this when I list them. There are physical barriers, um, which are very often the problem, as I mentioned with Bulak at the beginning, and often it has to do with the bootstrap logic of the arrival city. It's a place, you come from a village, there's no way you can afford even the cheapest place in the city, but in order to prevent possibility of your family starving to death or, or the possibility of you never developing out of peasant agriculture into commercial agriculture, you need to have a foothold in the city. What do you do? You find the place in the city that nobody in the city wants to live in, uh, whether it's uh, swamp prone or physically removed from the city or on the edge of a cliff or beside an international airport or something like that. One of the ways to fix these places is to remove whatever factor it is that made it so cheap in the first place without trying to raise its property value too much that it prices itself out of the people who are living there. Uh, putting a bridge over that canal. Uh, the Brazilians who have with two big sporting events coming up in Rio, have finally started to invest properly in fixing their favelas, put cable cars up them, which transformed them dramatically. Or in Sao Paulo, they put in minibus services, which I've seen turn around the neighborhoods dramatically. Physical barriers, and we need to watch out for a high-rise outskirt neighborhoods becoming places of, of isolation because of poor transit links, because of low density, and so on. Um, Bureaucratic barriers are a big problem too. The inability of immigrants to start small businesses, to have proper educational opportunities, zoning restrictions that get, get in their way. And finally, citizenship barriers, by which I mean not only legal citizenship, but also de facto citizenship. China has 200 million people uh, who live in, generally in slums and uh, in 20 person to a room rooming houses in the cities of China who are legally villagers. Uh, they cannot legally become urban residents. They are stuck with their, generally with their parents and their children in the villages. We have 200 million people's worth of children growing up, not seeing anyone over 15 or under 65 uh, around them except their parents once a year for a couple weeks. Um, that lack of urban citizenship is causing a lack of investment in these transitory urban communities, which should be the great sort of Manchesters of the new China and so on. Um, in Germany, the presence of two, two million Turks who were drawn in by real economic need uh, in labor shortages, but never given the right to full citizenship, uh, turned those Turks into 
what in Germany is seen as a dangerous and criminal and religious extremist underclass, even though I track in, in a rival city Turks from the same villages in Anatolia and the southeast who uh, go to Germany and their neighbors go to, Brit to London and then their other neighbors go to the outskirts of Istanbul. Those on the outskirts of Istanbul and London become members of a successful middle class, not terrifically religious, uh, uh, and in general, in most cases, part of the successful economy. Their neighbors who go to Germany uh, without the ability to invest in their neighborhoods, buy their house, start a small business, put their kids in university, uh, do the immigrant thing to get their neighborhood successful, are stuck with uh, whatever they need to do to survive, which doesn't involve teaching their children German. It often involves an underground economy, uh, criminalism, and, and so on. When the worst thing any city can do is to have a large population within it, who are there because the economy demands them, but who have no pathway to full legal citizenship. They will find a way to survive that will become, that will work against the success of the community rather than, rather than for it and so on. So we need to think about, not about these neighborhoods as a problem, but as neighborhoods that have a set of impediments placed in the way of their intended uh, internal logic in, in terms of their function. This is becoming a world of arrival cities. 50 million new city dwellers are created in the developing world each month, and we're only midway through a 100-year transition in these areas that is producing the main source of population movements across borders into our own country, which we would be foolish to think could be restricted or stopped uh, because, because our economies will, will make this part of, of our lives. We need to understand their function and invest in their success today to avoid a far greater cost in policing and uh, social services and perhaps political violence in the future. They are the place where the story of the 21st century will be told. Thank you very much. Your whole description of these arrival cities is predicated on the arrival of a population that is highly motivated, socially connected back home, socially connected in the arrival city, and in essence, a strong, positive community. We're seeing a lot of communities now that are third generation on welfare, products of LA city schools and therefore illiterate, uh, no skills. Do you have anything to say about these populations and can they have a place in a, re a change of the city? Very often, uh, when you examine what's happening in the neighborhoods that have failed or that are producing a second or third generation who aren't attached, well, I mean, first of all, sometimes it's because there isn't much of an economy going on around. What's causing that? Very often, uh, the problems in California cities are rooted in a lack of access to citizenship. You do have a, you do have a large part of the population who are not full legal citizens uh, or are somewhere stuck on the pathway to that, uh, but don't have, well, because of uh, legislative things that I don't need to go over here that have happened in the last 10 or 15 years, both in California and in Washington, uh, are excluded from a lot of the opportunities and so on. And I think this tends to infect uh, communities as well. If you have a large cluster of people who do not have uh, access to citizenship and so on. You can see neighborhoods like this turn around um, if, 
if there are an investment in certain types of education, uh, in better transportation, in the things like this that make them work. Um, when I've seen neighborhoods that have become sort of third generation failures that have been turned around, both in the West and the developing world, it's usually because they've realized that they were on this trajectory, that they were uh, gateway neighborhoods for people arriving from somewhere that got stuck because of a certain set of impediments and that, and that find a way to self-govern uh, and see themselves as, as arrival cities, if I can use the term, uh, and provide the, the specific services that are needed. Uh, in some cases, it's not what people outside think. It's not necessarily social services, welfare, and so on. In some cases, it's more technical education. It's... Uh, uh, it's uh, family support, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's uh, economic support, it's uh, provision of loan opportunities for small business and, and things like this. Uh, so it's, it's worth looking at the neighborhoods that have turned themselves around, because it can happen. It can happen even in the poorest countries that very failed and violent places can, can turn around. I read your book on the weekend. Mm -hmm. It's very good. My favorite chapter was the one on Istanbul. Um, it's worth the price of admission. <laughs> My question, I have a question about the section where you write about, a, you reference a book, I think it's by a man named Harris, and the book is called Unplanned Suburbs. Mm -hmm. and you briefly tell the story of people moving to Toronto and building homes that they, or shanty-style buildings on property that they own, but it's mm -hmm. unplanned. And, yet, and, they don't, and they don't actually legally own it. Own but it, the banks yeah. and government recognize it, as I recall. In the Eventually did. I mean, Richard Harris, who was a geographer, was sort of the first to, and I referenced his work when I talked about Chicago there. Uh, he dug through the property records of the early 20th century, and he was the one who found that a significant part of Chicago's population, and an even larger part of Toronto's population, were living in what we would call shantytown slums, essentially around the outskirts in that population, uh, from various ethnic groups and so on, um, and uh, including African Americans, uh, and were living there not because they'd fallen out of society, but because actually it was a place that they could become property owners uh, of illegally subdivided urban land, not provided with sewage services uh, or, or graded streets or anything like that, uh, very haphazard up against each other, uh, but uh, a pathway into urban life. These neighborhoods were generally normalized and graded and uh, given uniform frontages by the city in the 1920s and 30s and are now sort of well-established inner suburbs that nobody is even aware started as self-built shack towns and so on. So his work's really interesting on this, yeah. So here's my question. I followed up and the subtitle of that book is It's Unplanned Suburbs, Toronto's American Tragedy. And I'm wondering what the subtitle means, if you could comment on that. I don't know. I asked him about that, and it didn't make any sense. So. <laughs> you, you, you asked the author? I think, yeah, I know him. I, I mean, I've spoken with him about that. I've asked him that. I think he was trying to make um, a bit of a poetic reference to the idea of an American dream. Um, and I think he regarded it as a tragedy that, uh, that these neighborhoods were normalized. And so on. I mean, it's interesting because he went on did substantial work on Chicago and Los Angeles and Detroit and their self-built shack towns uh, as as well. Uh, so I think it was a play on the idea of an American dream. Although, 
in, in the sense that these neighborhoods provided a bottom rung on the ladder, or shall we say a second and third rung, uh, for people who had arrived uh, out of rural poverty, and he felt it was a tragedy that this lower rung no, no longer exists. And I have to say that that view of his, that, that it's a tragedy that slum formation was no longer allowed in North American cities, echoes a lot what some of the more enlightened thinkers in China today are saying as, as, the, as Beijing goes on some large-scale campaigns to rehouse people in high-rises in the self-built slums. You do get a movement of historians in Beijing now uh, who are asking that uh, places like Shenzhen, which have become inaccessible to the poorest workers, they've had to raise their minimum wages over and over to keep people there, and, and poor workers still can't live there, have actually started saying, maybe we should start encouraging shanty towns and slums in uh, places like Shenzhen in order to allow a bottom rung on the property ownership ladder uh, so that people have something other than a 12-person dormitory to live in. I was just wondering if you considered uh, Detroit like a departure city, and if, yeah. if has that repeated itself anyplace else? And I just wondered what you thought would happen to a city like that in 50 years w with that valuable infrastructure if it'll come back. Um, no, I don't think it will. And I know Detroit pretty well. Uh, I spent a lot of time there. Um, there is large, there actually is substantial immigration into Detroit if you include, if you expand Detroit to include its outer municipalities, which aren't incorporated as Detroit and so on. Um, and that immigration is all to the uh, very low population density uh, middle suburbs and so on. Actually, a very good document of the uh, sort of arrival city of Detroit was that Eminem movie. Uh, what was it called? Nine Mile? Eight Mile. Some number of miles. Uh, which I thought was a very good, gave a very good visual sense of uh, the way of the challenges of um, urban establishment in an inner ring suburb and so on, having to ride, ride the bus for 47 minutes in order to get to uh, some kind of a rudimentary job and so on, and uh, not really having any sort of economic or social connections among people because of the, the wide density of spaces between them. That's, that's where immigration takes place now and so on. Um, Detroit's a bit unusual in that the central city is inaccessible to new immigrants for a number of reasons that aren't, don't exist in other places. In, in most other places, the central city is inaccessible to immigrants because it's become priced too, too high by the first people who moved in. I mean, there was a very lucky period in many northern cities uh, in the decades after the Second World War when there was this huge stock of Victorian housing uh, that was very undesirable to middle-class white guys like me. I mean, the, the idea, until about the mid-70s, the idea of living in a Victorian house downtown was so revolting and undesirable uh, that nobody wanted to do it, and it was open to uh, people from Eastern and Southern Europe and then from pe people from uh, China and the Indian subcontinent and so on, uh, who, and it was perfectly physically situated this housing stock for the creation of arrival cities because uh, generally cities were fairly lax on zoning in these districts, allowed people to open restaurants and shops in these houses, and, this, and the property value increased, and they were able to use that property value increase to finance small business success and the post-secondary education of their children and so on. They were kind of, just by freak luck, were sort of ideal arrival cities. Uh, and the new waves of immigrants who are coming 
to the more high-rise-y uh, and more suburban-y uh, inner rings don't have this, the physical luck. I think we got lucky before, and our next waves of immigration, we're going to have to put a little initial investment into it to make it work. Our resources are dwindling, obviously, uh, in the face of you know, uh, global issues that we have. So how would you address uh, the fact that we've got this huge amount of people who are going to be moving in and it's going to increase before it, well, it will not decrease. How are you going to, how are you going to uh, provide for these people? Are we going to have enough land? Are we going to have enough resources? And how are we going to protect those resources? And the greatest problem of food provision in the world right now is, is probably that there are so many people in rural areas. Um, the, in too many countries, the land is used to, to support a population rather than to produce food and so on. Uh, um, as I said, if, when, you get the rural, the, when you get the population employed in agriculture down to about 2%, you start producing vast amounts of food. When it's above 10%, it's very hard to produce a reasonable amount of food because you're supporting a population. Uh, successful agriculture causes people to leave the land. Um, and this, and we need, to, we need to do this urgently. I mean, the food crisis that began in 2008, unlike previous food crises, is, is a crisis of supply. We, we're not producing enough food for markets right now. India uh, produces half as much food per hectare as Europe does. It could easily double that by uh, getting out of its political fetish of the peasant farmer and allowing people to move into more commercial forms of farming. Sub-Saharan Africa could be producing more food than all of Asia for the world. It, instead, it's a net importer of food and so on because it uses the land to support a population rather than to produce food. Investments are starting to come in from China and so on, uh, which is causing some encouraging developments, causing better life and so on. There's, there are worries that agriculture will improve too fast in sub-Saharan Africa and cause so many people to leave for the city uh, that, uh, that there won't be the economic activities developing the city fast enough to provide for them. But the, the, the next factor that you have to consider behind all of these sustainability issues is that getting people off the rural land and into cities causes the populations to shrink very dramatically. Um, rural populations tend to have very large families. Urban populations everywhere in the world generally have several children per family on average fewer and generally below the 2.1 children per family number that, that causes human populations to increase. All the, all the countries of the world that are more than 50% urban have shrinking populations. This is now just about to include China, which is very close to having shrinking population. It's having to bring in African immigrants to serve the factories of the Pearl River Delta and so on. Um, the world is very close to stabilizing its population and having population shrinkage, which will be a very desirable moment. But right now, the most sort of moderate projections are that it'll be around 2050 and at about uh, 9 billion people. Uh, it could be a little better and earlier if we were able to urbanize faster, although I should say forced urbanization never is very good for anybody. Uh, and it could be later if things are slowed down. There are only a handful of countries driving world population growth right now. They're generally, well, they're very rural countries, of course, and they're often places in conflict. And, and for a, a case study in how urbanization rather than culture or anything else is what causes family size change, I point to Iran, which in the mid-80s had eight children per family just about. 
Uh, and now, because of very rapid urbanization, has an average of 1.7 children per family and a very fast shrinking population, despite not having a culture um, or a government who uh, are terrifically enthusiastic about shouting about birth control, although they became more tolerant about it and so on. Uh, certainly the, a root, the root cause of, of a lot of the climate and, uh, and uh, sustainability problems is a, is a growing human population, so ending that would be it. Now this, this is offset by the fact that when, people, when families urbanize, they do tend to consume more resources per person. Uh, they live longer, longevity, infant mortality, HIV AIDS, susceptibility all improve by a decimal point when you, when you become urban, even when you become urban in a fairly poor slum. Um, so yes, greater resource consumption. That itself, again, is offset by the fact that the largest cities are the ones most able to mitigate against the effects of things like climate change to, 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 to build the infrastructure to deal with rising water levels, uh, to provide uh, the economies of scale in health service provision and so on that can work and so on. So in other words, you have a, you have a sort of a set of four factors working against each, each other in the world, sustainability, food production, population, resource consumption, and, and urban economies of scale. Uh, we will have to see during the next several decades how those add up. I don't really want to predict. Would you please describe the history of Los Angeles from this perspective? Let me describe the some of the more interesting developments in recent history in this development. We had a history of uh, the population of East LA by people mainly from Mexico and so on, which which was almost the, which was uh, generally uh, peaking in the years after the Second World War, I think. There, in the, well, in the two decades afterwards. Um, which set up the pattern in LA, which I think is more explicit than in a lot of other American cities, of, of a real physical mapping of uh, specific urban spaces to specific clusters of villages uh, in the originating country, and the, the establishment of economies uh, uh, connecting those specific city blocks to, to, to villages, the use of them to finance the development of the villages, and so on. Uh, after many struggles and difficulties and uh, impoverishments, there was the, that uh, East LA started to develop uh, what you'd call an arrival city middle class, who are, who are now an important part of the city, I would say, including the mayor. Um, and then you had a second set of things going on. Well, first of all, there was the period of conflict in the 1980s. Uh, which drove a lot of people, the first waves of people from Central America uh, into Los Angeles and other parts of, uh, of, of the US. Um, I should say in this book I bracket out conflict migration to some extent, uh, partly because the enclaves that are purely produced by conflict migration, and this wasn't the case of Central America, it was a combination of economic and conflict migration, uh, don't follow this pattern very much. They don't tend to be as well established and permanent. They have social troubles that are difficult, and refugee situations are very, very different from immigration situations, um, although one can turn into the other. Um, and also just because uh, there's too much written about conflict migration. I mean, I spend my days writing about conflict migration. I, was just, I just spent a couple of weeks uh, uh, in Libya and Tunisia on the border there, uh, looking at what was happening there. And yeah, that makes the front page, but 
shifts like that are maybe 6% of all international population movement. They're, they're, they're a minor thing in a world that has fewer people in fewer countries affected by war and conflict than at any point in modern history. Uh, and I found it useful to bracket that out and look at what is actually the largest movement of people, which is because of uh, seeking economic activities. Anyway, that aside, um, that the conflict migrations from Central America uh, turned into economic migrations from Central America as things stable, stabilized. And particularly, and I touch at this briefly, and it's a much larger subject, um, after the riots uh, in the early 1990s, um, a lot of the South Los Angeles neighborhoods uh, saw a, a sharp decline in property values, you could say, but also an abandonment of the old structure of sort of white-owned uh, absentee landlordism and African-American tenants uh, caused by both flight and also economic opportunity as a black middle class develops and moved out to the suburbs and so on. And a lot of those neighborhoods uh, became sort of ideally situated to become a rival city neighborhoods in that the property prices had dropped to the point that this new group of people were interested in coming in and tended rather than when they came into a little bit of money uh, doing the black and white American thing and, and leaving for the suburbs, they did more, the more Latin American thing and bought their little houses and improved them and so on. And there's, there was... Uh, range of improvement from, let's say, destitute bottom rung status to struggling but still poor working class status in, in a lot of those neighborhoods, not all, um, which caused a lot of sort of a rival city success that you can see in some places, small business success, second generations that in some cases are going in education and so on. At the same time, it, it ran against some barriers that were physical, related to the sometimes terrible layout of these neighborhoods, the, the uh, geographic isolation, uh, the poor transit links, and so on, and also ran up against citizenship barriers having to do with the fact that after the big normalization of populations, uh, of, of citizenship in the big amnesty wave of the, of the early 1990s, I forget the name of the piece of legislation, uh, it's this sort of classic period in American history where first the Reagan government uh, passed a law designed to really restrict immigration from Latin America, which caused a huge increase in immigration from Latin America, uh, mainly because of pressure from uh, agricultural industries, uh, and then caused a big amnesty and normalization of uh, legalization of people living here. And then the Gingrich Congress uh, tried to pass an even tougher uh, and did pass an even tougher bill designed to completely stop, this time forever, never again, any immigration from the South, which again caused a great increase in immigration from the South and another amnesty and normalization. It makes me very skeptical about anybody's laws. And, and conservative governments in France and Britain and so on have all ran elections and determinedly passed laws to stop people coming in. Whenever the economy starts to grow, people come in, and, and they may be illegal and so on. Anyway, the problem with this is that in a lot of the neighborhoods of South Los Angeles uh, and some in the East, um, and uh, you know places further south like Compton and so on, uh, you have large populations who, after that wave of normalization in the early 1990s, which was ostensibly designed to reward the people who'd fled the uh, conflict that, that sometimes the U.S. was involved with in Central America, uh, there has not been 
proper normalization, legalization drive since then, and you're getting a second and sometimes even third generation born in these neighborhoods who uh, do not have uh, a pathway that they can see to full U.S. citizenship, although the only life they've known is in Los Angeles and the only economy they know is in Los Angeles. Uh, but in some cases, they don't buy their house fully when they, they very well could. They don't, uh, they don't make their quite successful small business fully legal and tax paying uh, and so on. And they don't bother to put their kids on an educational pathway that will lead to to you know, advanced secondary education and post-secondary education and so on. So, so um, we have a history since the early 1990s of what should be a very successful cluster of arrival city neighborhoods of the sort that America saw throughout the 20th century in its cities that I think is in danger of being thwarted and probably has. I mean, we see the rise of gangs and so on. Uh, as an alternative economy and an alternative form of government almost in some of these neighborhoods. Uh, and this can be, I think if you talk to people about what caused this to form, you can find a direct link to the uh, lack of opportunities created by a, a, a loose link to both legal and de facto citizenship in the city. So uh, anyway, the, I'm sure there are various people in this room who can provide a much better history of the uh, immig immigrant modern, recent history of Los Angeles, but that's how I see it from my great and ponderous distance. <laughs> Thank you.